Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with Nick Aldridge, co-founder of Climate Science Breakthrough, a project working to translate the hard data of climate change into emotional, shareable, and actionable formats. It was recorded in November 2023. Nick is an advocate for climate awareness and is an ambassador for Zero Hour, a campaign in support of establishing the UK's Climate and Ecology Bill. He dedicates himself to narrowing the divide between the general public and the complexities of climate science. Nick applies his background in marketing to his work in environmental advocacy, bringing this experience to bear in his efforts to convey intricate climate issues to a diverse audience. Motivated by a pressing need to broaden the public's grasp of climate science, in 2023, Nick co-founded Climate Science Breakthrough alongside Climate Communications Lab Utopia Bureau and is focused on initiating a societal transformation that accelerates climate action. Amongst other things, Nick and I discussed the rationale behind Climate Science Breakthrough's work bringing together climate scientists and comedians, what makes comedians a useful vehicle for this kind of information in the first place, and the value that marketing minds can bring to the climate context. So let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Nick Aldridge. From your perspective, how can communication best contribute in humanity's response to the climate crisis? Communication is important because, as I see it, it's all about shifting public opinion. Uh, so everything we're doing right now, we're not doing it quickly enough or we're just not doing it at all. And I always cast my mind back to when I got connected to the climate crisis. 20 years ago, we could have done this nicely, quietly, in an organised fashion, almost behind the scenes. 2% cuts a year. And the public wouldn't really need to fully know about that it could sort of happen (laughs) we've missed that one haven't we so we've missed the managed transition and so what we need to do now if we're going to succeed is something quite dramatic so anything we do now is going to be difficult possibly messy it's going to create some upheaval so i just don't see how we can do that when there's still a massive disconnect between climate science and where people are i can only envisage it being pushed through or even happening if the public are really pushing for it, so if there's a full understanding of climate change, what it really means in terms of the threats and the risks, not just how people think understand it now. So communication for me is all about the public, and it'll be the public who drive the change we need. What inspired you to initiate this project and to focus on communicating climate science? I started out thinking I'd be a spectator and I'd watch this unfold. And then here we are with all the best technology, amazing nature-based solutions, the best stories, all the health benefits. And here we are still losing. You know, even if we're doing well, that's not enough. Going slowly is losing, isn't it? And so slowly I'm becoming more and more worried and concerned. Then thinking, okay, I need to share what I know and get other people on board because we need more people to be thinking like me, not just people in the eco-bubble. And so I started out thinking I would just talk to friends and acquaintances who aren't on this train. And I very quickly found that that's really hard to do without people thinking you're mildly hysterical or slightly unhinged. You know, if you talk about civilization collapse or the food system breaking down. So I look at newspapers. Okay, what can I send people? Oh, not everyone reads that newspaper or that headline's a bit too screamy or that newspaper's full of skepticism and, and, and denial. Then I looked at 
scientific studies and papers, some of which I read. I remember a Chatham House report about future climate impacts. I thought that's quite effective. It brings it home. It's hundreds of pages long. Who's going to read this if I send it to them? Uh, then I settled on the climate scientists and I would listen to people like Kevin Anderson. This guy really talks well. And I think the moment of realisation was a Kevin Anderson YouTube where he was giving this absolutely devastating bit of narrative or explanation as to what's happening. And I thought, wow, that is impactful. That's got me. But there's a big but. It looked a bit like my son had sent it from one of his uni lectures. So it was shot possibly on a phone and the sound was poor and the lighting was poor. And the thing that struck me was, okay, if I send this to the people I'm thinking of, their response is going to be, well, if this is so important, why is this guy not on the news or on a BBC documentary? This isn't going to work. And then this thought, you know, I have a marketing background, I guess that led me there in, in part. But the thought was, okay, so what if we took Mr. Anderson and his message and gave him the same treatment as we give fashion, cars, iPhones? You know, what if we got the advertising world to look at this problem because it is actually the most important message on the planet right now. And so why don't we get the people we employ to persuade us to buy things to look at this, people who are experts at getting our attention. Uh, so I guess, yeah, that's where it all started. Where did the idea of using comedians to convey this message come from? This is where I can't claim any credit. So I have my Kevin Anderson moment and we're at the tail end of lockdown. And this could have been something I just sat on, like those things we think about that we might do that we know we probably never will do. And I think this is something that's emblematic about the climate crisis. If you've got your head around it, you realise I have to do something I wouldn't ordinarily do that's pushing me outside my comfort zone and in my case, costing me money. Because if I take myself into the future, that's what I want myself now to do. The money that I then realised I was going to need to spend is money that, you know, on a three degree trajectory, will that exist? Will be any use? So I try to put myself into the future and think back to what I would have done. And this is it. So I would have spent it. And I also thought I'm just going to plough in and I am going to push to just make it happen because it's quite easy just to pull back and go, this is not my place or this is all going to go horribly wrong or I should give it all to Client Earth or Greenpeace or, you know, lots of amazing uh, institutions. But it struck me that something different needs to happen from everybody. So we've got to try all these new things. And so I started the great thing about social media and the internet, just reaching out and, and trying to find some advertising people. I knew I didn't want it to be from the eco bubble. So it had to be from outside. And then I was just lucky enough to connect with Ben Carey and Henrik Delahag, who are the Utopia Bureau. So these guys I think I've just reached the same point I have when it comes to the climate crisis. But really importantly, they are advertising professionals with real pedigrees in the industry. And the other important thing that happened is they didn't sort of laugh at me and go, who the hell are you? <laughs> and what do you think you're going to do? Um, and so, yes, we almost instantly fell into a sort of work mode of ideas. And this back and forth went on for a while. It wasn't until comedians landed in front of me as their latest idea. I'm not going to share their other ideas because we might actually use them. But the comedians landed and that just made sense. Because what you've got to remember is we were going to film the climate scientist, but we had to do something with him that made people watch it. I mean, my naive first idea is let's just film him on a high quality bit. You know, that's not going to go viral, is it? So, so it had to be something that had traction. We weren't going to have loads of money to promote these things. So the audience had to grab it and take it and share it and all those kind of things. So, yeah, comedians just landed in front of me and that was it. Um, we then formed this partnership that became the Climate Science Breakthrough and here we are. 
What do you believe are the key challenges in effectively communicating climate change to a general audience? And how does humour help address these challenges? Yeah, I think you've got lots of obstacles within society. So some people don't want to hear it, haven't got time to hear it, have got other worries. That's where the entertainment angle comes in. But also you've got this huge swathe of counter narratives or climate propaganda that's come from you know who. You know, it's not that bad. Our emissions don't count compared to China. Renewables are expensive. We haven't got the raw materials or they don't work or heat pumps are rubbish. Then the thing they use to address anyone campaigning, you know, they're zealots, um, they're fanatics. The models are all wrong. You know, how many times do we hear that? So no matter who you are, some of that's reached you. I mean, obviously, if you read certain newspapers, that's all you think about. But some of that's reached everybody. So we've got to push back against that. You know, we've got a really well-funded machine pumping out oil and climate disinformation. And so whatever we produced had to have enough power in it and watchability to it to push back against that. So the climate scientists are there as the trusted authority, but the comedians are there to humanise it, you know, to help us absorb it. And comedians, they're observers of reality. They call things out. I think we had a debate about actors at one point. And these guys, they get called virtue signalers, don't they, if they say anything. But comedians, you can heckle comedians, they can take that. So they stand up, they represent us, they observe what's happening in society and they call it out and they make it relatable and watchable. So I can't see, looking back now, we may be thinking about this in the future, but I can't see a, of a better medium that we could have used really. Have there been any unexpected barriers or perhaps lessons learned from facilitating the collaborations between comedians and climate scientists? This is an interesting one. I mean, I'm working with two very experienced individuals, but for me, this is all completely new. Uh, but I did share with them the thought that the climate scientists just might not speak to us because they might think we were maybe going to laugh at them and not take them seriously. And I think just about everyone but one was interested and engaged. And I think that's touching on their frustration about not being heard. Uh, but it was the talent that was the problem. Loads of good come back from comedians uh, as in interest. But then you have this point when you actually want to get them to agree to turn up for something. And don't forget, we're not paying the comedians or the climate scientists, but it was like a roller coaster. This one's interested. Oh, but no, they're not because diaries. I have never heard of anybody who has a diary like some of the comedians we were trying to connect with. So that was difficult. But the one I was worrying about was what is the climate scientist, you know, professor level going to do when the comedian starts ranting and swearing? And that made me quite nervous because they are turning up on a set with full camera crew, lots of people. It might be an environment they're familiar with. Some of them were, some of them weren't. But Suddenly, there's a moment when we had Professor Joanna Haig for our second film, and um, Jonathan Pye started this absolute rant. And I just remember looking around going, oh, goodness, she's going to walk out. And she was properly laughing away in the corner. And I think that moment, I thought, okay, it's all right. It's, I think it's a relief and a release. In climate science, for all the right reasons, you have to be exact, careful, um, calm, calculated, all those things that we know and expect scientists to be. You can't get overexcited. It will dilute your message. So when you see someone reflect your message, I think they find that quite therapeutic. 
I think for a few of them, that's what they're feeling on the inside, but their profession simply doesn't allow them to act like that. How do you balance the need to convey the urgency of climate change with the use of humour, which can sometimes be seen as downplaying serious issues? Yeah, so we certainly didn't hold back. And this is an important one for me, because I think it resonated with how I got here. So if you're going to take any of this seriously, then the climate crisis, you have to sort of understand it fully, not just, oh, yeah, climate change, that's going to happen possibly in the future. Doesn't it start in 2050? And it'll happen somewhere further away. And, you know, blah, 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 I've got other things to worry about. I broke it down into three things that need to happen to you, I I think. And I am semi-inspired here by Genevieve Gunter, the Renaissance scholar who takes a sort of more literary view of how to tell this story and tells us all we're being too number driven and you've got to turn it into an epic and it's a whole nother conversation but there's the bit where you understand the seriousness of it to do that properly you have to avail yourself of that information and that if you're human will lead you to experience a deep sense of fear almost trauma isn't it it's, it's really quite primal at the sheer size and scale of this thing but the other one is outrage because you also need to know there are actions of others that are trying to stop us dealing with this, successfully trying to stop us dealing with this. In fact, I've put us into a position where it's now you know, an emergency when, as I said at the beginning, it could have been done in a much more sensible way. And then you've got a third element, which is, is hope, because we've got so many great tools. I mean, it's extraordinary. Imagine having this conversation if we didn't have all those stats that you can apply to the renewable technology or to something I'm learning a lot more about nature-based solutions. They're extraordinary. Our toolbox is amazing. And so you've got this whole complicated set of messaging. And I think you can't just have the fear bit because you just go off and think, oh, it's hopeless. You have to have the outrage because that, in the words of Genevieve Gunther, it's the outrage on top of the fear that drives you into action, that moves you, that gets you onto your feet and says, no, I'm going to stop this because it's us against those guys over there. And so humour has to be the only way of breaking all that down. It's just too much otherwise. One thing we did in each of the translations, we had a bit at the end, which we called the Frank chat. And that is important. And that seems to resonate with a lot of people. Because what happens there is the climate scientist is supposed to open up to the comedian. And, you know, climate scientists has done their science bit. And now they're doing that. This is how I feel bit are you actually really worried bit so that added a real human element to it so i think if we just made a big joke out of the whole thing with a series of gags yeah i don't think that would have been the right way to, to use humor but i think because we rounded it off in that way and we had those other elements i think it well, hopefully hopefully it works What has been the audience's response to this comedic approach to climate science? And can you share any anecdotes or feedback that might illustrate the impact of the work? Yeah, I mean, still trying to digest and and analyse all this, but the niche film itself, we have reached well over 3 million in the two weeks since launch. I think the thing that really makes a difference is the, the big names that get behind it. So with the first films, we had Chris Packham calling them utterly brilliant sharing them on all his channels, which is incredible. We've had uh, recently Gary Lineker, Ellie Goulding, Rain Wilson from The Office in the USA, and then Catherine Hayhoe, a a fantastic climate scientist, but also an amazing communicator, actually. So that has been quite incredible. And there's also the the geography of it. So quite a lot from Germany. I think Freddie Otto helped there. 
US, Australia, Canada, um, New Zealand, a lot coming in from Singapore, a lot of interest of maybe doing a South Asia version. You know, it's something that's always in the back of our minds, where will it go next? But I think the ones that stick are the people that, I guess, do what you do and have been working on climate communication who send me these messages on LinkedIn or various platforms and just pour out this gratitude. It's amazing. Those are journalists from South Africa who have been doing this for 20 years. And I'm really touched because that is the finest piece of climate communication I've ever seen. And I can't thank you enough. Those are the stories that I think reach me the most. It's coming from the people that know what the problem is and have been looking for a solution. What advice would you give to other communicators looking to integrate humour into their climate communications efforts? Yeah, I mean, this is a hard one. I mean, I don't know whether I'm fully qualified for this, but I think I can pin it on one thing, which is the comedians. So we are not just taking climate change and throwing some humour at it. We've touched on this. We're using people who are allowed to do this. It's their profession. This is what comedians do for a living. They take complicated subjects or difficult subjects or they touch on things that we won't. So I think that buys us a ticket because we've given comedians, as I said earlier, permission to do this. So it, it made it safer for us, although we were worried. I mean, we had this line about hundreds of millions of refugees in the very first film. And we did stop at that point in the filming saying, look, we don't want to cast any negative dispersions on poor helpless people who are refugees but at the same time people need to know it's coming and that was Kerry Pritchard McLean and she just nailed it I thought comedians are just good at jokes I guess I was a bit naive but it's there's so much more going on there isn't there the way they handle the tone and the context they place on that so if you're going to go and step into using comedy just generally that's got to be possible especially for British people I don't know how it translates into other territories necessarily we put a lot into our scripts and our copy, our words, everything we did, we thought about it. So I would just, my advice would be just think, think it through, show it to other people and get feedback. So alongside the uh, videos, you also conducted some research. Could you give an overview of that research and maybe an overview of the findings? Yes. So we teamed up with CensusWide, market research company, and we, um, we're basically looking to compare perceptions and attitudes between climate scientists and members of the public. The background says we thought this is going to help us when we try and approach some of the serious press. You know, we've got this funny video, but it's not just about that. It's about the subject of communication and how climate scientists aren't being listened to. And there's a few really obvious ones, like 75% of climate scientists don't believe the government's doing enough. I mean, I'm surprised it's that low. Uh, 98% supported the ban on new oil and gas. 82% think their work is not adequately heard and acted upon. And it gets more interesting when you find out that 88 are pessimistic about the next 20 years, that's climate scientists, but only 39% of the public are in that same space. So there's your disconnect between the two. And then 92% of climate scientists, probably like me, are worried about their children's future. But 92%, funnily enough, also think that society has all the knowledge and tools to address the problem. Only 2% of the public can actually name a climate scientist. So that's why the climate science breakthrough exists. I simply have no explanation to why they haven't been on Question Time, on the news, in documentaries, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not, and therefore people don't know them and they don't hear the message. I think about 8% of people named people who weren't climate scientists who they thought were. So Greta Thunberg came up, David Attenborough came up. So they're naming people who repeat climate science, but not 
the people that do the work. I don't know if it's that people haven't been listening so much as it hasn't been presented in the format that they needed to have it presented to them in, like what you've done here. Yeah, I think so. Because it is in the background, isn't it? But you have to go and look for it. And then when you find it, it's dry and it's formal. I mean, one thing I'd like to see is COVID-style briefings on climate every quarter. You know, we really presented well, I suppose, when we put those experts up in front of us on our TVs and who explain the detail. We don't do that on climate. You know, that'd be great to see. It's the context in which you hear it that really affects how you receive it, I suppose. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we should be paying attention to in our communications endeavours? Okay, yeah. um, Weren't we cruel to the climate science community? They did a massive body of work and then we expected them to handle all the comms as well. I mean, that's not what they're trained to do. In fact, they're trained to do something quite different that almost stops them from doing what we what we then expected them to do, which is make it human and get us to digest it and hear it and listen to it. So yeah, I think leaving it to the climate scientists to try and connect that with the public. Some of this is complicated stuff, some of it's scary. There's lots of reasons not to listen to it. So that's part of it. But I think the answer also is you've got to link it to people personally. It can't be abstract. And we're often too abstract, aren't we? Parts per million and net zero 2050. It's all numerical stuff. I think we did make a mistake in in not talking about how the impacts will affect people. And I think I think a lot of the climate scientists will say, well, that's not my job to say, you know, extreme weather, therefore there might not be any crops growing in the fields because I, I can't go that far, you know. So so I think we didn't finish the piece. Um, we didn't bridge the gap. We really missed a trick there. What's the biggest mistake that you see communicators make when attempting to engage the public on climate change issues? I mean, there's the obvious one, lots of dry data, lots of graph, lots of numbers. Lots of people like numbers, but you're only talking to a small percentage of the population. Usually the ones who already know it's a problem are there, will therefore invest the time into into reading this. Um, But I think it might be shifting now, but I've always seen it as turning the climate science problem and then pointing it at something abstract like polar bears. I love polar bears, but how many times have you heard that as the answer to the issue that they're describing. There was a physicist on Sunday daytime TV, I forget his name. He was talking about a great talk about carbon budgets. I mean, that was a very unusual, so very succinct and eloquent on carbon budgets. And then the interviewer said, okay, so if we don't address that, what happens? And he said, well, then we lose things like the barrier reef. And I have my head in my hands. I mean, 99% of people on the planet have never or will never go to the barrier reef they might know what it is but it's not going to inspire them into action you know why aren't you talking about the food system the financial system our security the billions of people who might move you know there's so much you could talk about so i think they often point to abstract things and i think the other one is time scales i mean i don't know there's a great way to explain this but that whole 2050 thing it's all about what we do between now and when we get there obviously but it's just seen as a distant target And we don't talk enough about how much we're burning on the way and therefore what the milestones are. I mean, don't we have to go half by 2030 and, you know, and just explain what happens. You can't suddenly slam the brakes on right at the end because you all really would have massively overshot. Those are quite nebulous and difficult things to explain. So I don't think there's an easy way of doing it. 
but I think we we're, we're missing a trick because we're not even trying to explain that properly. And and that's why people are left with thinking, yeah, this is a problem. I don't quite get when it's going to be a problem, but it doesn't feel like it's going to be a problem anytime soon because it's you know it's not explained to me properly. So I'm going to worry about all the other things I probably need to be worrying about and not that. I had a brilliant time talking to Nick. Having been enjoying the climate science breakthrough videos over the last few months, I found it pretty fascinating to talk through the rationale behind the project. But what stuck with you from this conversation? What will you take from it and apply to your own work? More than anything, Nick's personal stake in the whole thing and his commitment to trying something new and risky is something that inspired me a lot. How can I apply that kind of thinking to this project? Where have I been settling for, quote unquote, good enough? where striving for something more could result in a bigger impact? These are the kinds of questions that have been on my mind since our chat, and I imagine they'll be sticking with me for quite some time. But what about you? What did you hear? What will you be incorporating into your communications endeavors? Thanks to Nick Aldridge for sharing his time and insight with the show. It was great. You can find links to some relevant resources in the show notes, including to all of those climate science breakthrough videos. If you haven't checked them out yet, I really recommend you do so. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. If you enjoyed this episode, why not leave it a rating or a review? You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts or by subscribing so you never miss out. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits to help us develop the skills and the determination that we'll need for this important task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.